Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. This is the Runner's World podcast. Welcome to the Runner's World podcast with me Rick Pearson. And me, Ben Hobson. Today we're talking to Nick Butter, the man who ran a marathon in every country around the world. Blimey. Ben, what's the, uh, yeah, what's the most uh, exotic country you've run in, mate? Ooh. Well, I've, I've done, I've run, I've, the most exotic place I've done a race, a proper race, would be Japan. Ooh. Yes, please. Right. I know. It, was, it is good. It was amazing. I did the Red Bull, uh, the Wings for Life race. That's the one, the one where everyone starts at the same time, that one. That's the one, yeah. Yep. And I, uh, I got to go out to Japan for that. Um, I think that the race, the race itself was, was kind of weird because it was quite rural. So it was like sort of, um, I, and it was at night time. So I was in Japan doing an amazing race, but I just had no idea what I was looking at or running past. So it could have, could have really been anywhere. But um, for it was amazing because there's, you know, obviously we, we the running culture in Japan is 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 well established and yeah, revered, yeah. revered. So. Um, people were coming out and cheering late into the night. So it wasn't just a sort of like a, a sort of weird thing that was happening and people were ignoring. It was a, a celebrated thing. So that was really good. What about you? Well, I once visited this place called Sealand, which is a self-declared country just off the, the east coast of um, of England. So like near Harwich is the is the port. And uh, I've never heard of it. No, no, a lot of people haven't. Essentially, it was a, a Second World War Two gunning tower. And there's a few of these dotted around the, the British coast. And I think in the 60s, um, someone came and claimed it as uh, their own um, their own country. It was it was in an area of of uh, a map called Terra Nullis, I think, which means it kind of it's kind of owned by no one. So so theoretically, kind of up for grabs. So uh, this chap went there and said, "Yeah, this is a country, the country, the Principality of Sealand." Uh, and I had a friend uh, at Hernhill Harriers, the running club that I'm kind of loosely affiliated with, and. Um, he a guy called Simon Messenger, and he was doing seventy runs around the world. So he's kind of seeing the world mm. in seventy races, basically. Um, and he came to me and said, uh, "Look, I really want to go to Sealand." And I was like, "Wow, I've never heard of it." And I looked up and said, "This is amazing." So um, he wanted to do the first ever half marathon on Sealand. So we convinced uh, a treadmill company to to ship a treadmill out to Sealand. You can you can only get there by by a, by a, on a on a kind of motorboat that they own. Uh, the people, the, the royalty of Sealand, and uh, it got winched up. So, and we went and, uh, yeah, he did the first ever half marathon on deck <laughs> of Sealand. Uh, and it was, it was it was amazing. It was an amazing um, day out, actually. There's a, we, we didn't, we created a small 
film of it called uh, No Half Measures. If anyone wants to Google No Half Measures Sealand, you can see you can see the whole thing. So uh, I like. I mean, all of this is amazing. But do people still live on Sealand? Is it like is it that someone's just home that they live on? Yeah, there's about um, a sort of rotating cast of about five or six people who who look after it. So there's always someone there. So it's always manned. Um, had an amazing history. I think. In the 70s, I think, uh, uh, a group of Germans took Sealand by siege. They, 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 actually, they actually kidnapped someone who was, on, who was living in Sealand for a few days. And, and the people of Sealand uh, got, um, got a James Bond pilot of, of a helicopter and swooped and, and, and took it back. I think, I think with, you know, like, uh, yeah, with, with force, basically. Um, so it's, it's had, oh my gosh. yeah, it's an, it's an inc- incredible history and, and they're very, very proud of it. And they, you know, they, they really do believe it is its own, you know, it's got a right for yeah. play. And they've, they've, there's a foot, there's a Sealand football team. You can buy, you can become an, uh, a knight, I think, of Sealand. You can, you can buy kind of, you know, sir, <laughs> sirs, you know, titles. Amazing. So, uh, but it was, oh. it was amazing. Yeah. I mean, it had to be done on a treadmill because it's just too dangerous really to run around the deck of it. But, um. It was an yeah, amazing like an day. old gunning tower. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Fine, mate. Well, yours is better than mine. Well, no, it's it's, it's bizarre, but yeah, I, I've and um, I've got a Sealand um, stamp in my passport as well because they they stamp your passport oh. as you go in. Yeah. So uh, amazing. Pretty cool. Yeah. So I wonder, can can our readers can our readers beat that, or oh, actually, you know, just tell us where you're the most exciting place you've been running. <laughs> Let us know. Podcast at runnersworld.co.uk. This is the Runners World podcast. Uh, oh, talking about readers writing in, Ben, we had a response actually to last week's podcast about harassment on the run. Um, so just to recap, if you didn't listen to that one, uh, we spoke uh, with Kat Roberts, who's a runner who's been conducting a number of interviews with women who've been verbally or physically abused while running. It does seem like it's still a big problem uh, and consideration for people. Uh, so yeah, Kat spoke about it being a product of kind of lad culture and uh, yeah. sort of women and men need to stop when they see it, start calling it out, basically. Um, we think she was right. And uh, yeah, we received an email from a former policeman who uh, was in support of what Kat said, of course, but uh, he had a few kind of safety pointers he wanted to point out. So I thought maybe worth reading these out anyway, just to sort of continue the discussion. So mm. he says, I'm a retired London police officer who during my service used to give safety for women presentations, which were um, given to groups of women who were concerned with their safety on the street. Um, and I'll list some of the advice here. So he says, uh, yeah, choose your routes and so run routes that you consider safe, well lit, well populated, etc. Uh, raise your vision, keep looking ahead uh, for points or persons that you may consider uh, would cause you issues concentrate so don't get wrapped up in you know the music or a podcast you may be listening to and do not put yourself in danger which i think was his main point he said that you know if you see you're approaching a, a, a situation that is dangerous or somebody who looks dodgy um try to sort of remove yourself from that uh situation change your route etc um and, and he felt yeah. he just felt like it needed to be underlined because i think cat rightly said that you know more people need to call this out but his concern was that you know uh Essentially, if you did, you know, say, say someone, look, what you're doing is out of order or, you know, what on earth are you doing? Uh, well, that's empowering. He, he, his kind of argument was uh, there appears to be no form of risk assessment in this. And there's always a chance that the perpetrator may raise the incident from a verbal assault to a physical assault. Sometimes it may be better to execrate yourself from the incident. Remember as many details as you can and report it to the authorities if necessary. So I think generally sort of good practical advice but i think yeah worth reiterating what cat said is that actually you know the emphasis needs to be on people not doing this rather than people being um yeah rather than the victims of this you know taking the 
the responsibility. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a complete balance between changing the whole culture, which is the most fundamentally mm. important part of it, where these things aren't allowed and aren't seen as viable things that you can do versus challenging something in an immediate situation which could enhance your chance, you know, you put you at more risk. So I think that's kind of like the, the difference, isn't it? You know, the, the, the greater work is call it out, stamp it out, stop it, educate men that you cannot behave in this way. Mm. But at the same time, don't put yourself at an additional risk of attack if you're challenging someone late at night and that sort of situation. I think that's what the policeman the former policeman is is getting at which you know does make sense for anyone really yeah agreed yeah we'd still like to hear from more people about this issue because i think it is yeah is a big uh problem for for women and also for for men so let us know yeah podcast at runnersworld.co.uk this is the runners world podcast so i want to talk about um dubious pieces of running kit that you wear regardless so i'm, I'm going to give you an example so uh I thought I'm going to experiment with these, uh, you know, these nose clips that you see some runners wearing, you know, yes. and uh, Sarah Hall wears one basically. She, and obviously Sarah Hall, amazing London marathon performance and Paula Radcliffe wore one when she set her longstanding uh, world record as well. So I thought, okay, well, I've never tried a nose clip. I feel like they kind of slightly got debunked, you know, around the sort of mid nineties when people like Robbie Fowler and like footballers were wearing uh, yeah, yeah. those clips, but they're, they're like, they're seven quid or something for 30. So you don't have to, you know, you're not having to invest too heavily in this. Uh, right. This okay. Got it. And I put them on, I put one on on Saturday. I tell you what, Ben, I ran really well. So I started thinking, oh, you know what? Next time, next time oh, I'm in gosh. a, next time I'm in a race, <laughs> I'm going to put on a yeah. nose clip. And it got me thinking, are there these, um, these items of clothing that we wear um, in sport that although science doesn't necessarily back it up and, and show that it's got, you know, real gains, like not like those, you know, the carbon plated footwear that we know actually does work. These are kind of like stuff that you wear almost for superstition. And I, I wondered mate, if you've, if you've got yeah. anything that, that fits into that bracket. Oh God. The thing is, I think, my, I think a lot of stuff that modern day running tech kind of adopts or mm. is like bought in is like it's it's when you get the sort of thermo regulating like <laughs> oh wear these wear these shorts because they've got like microfibers which will heat up your you know like yeah, that yeah, sort of yeah. that that sort of stuff that you're a bit dubious whereas it's stuff like compression socks yes now definitely. I, so like compression socks work in terms of recovery Mm. You know, in my understanding, and this is this can be challenged. I'm more than welcome for people to challenge. But you know, if you take the premise that post surgery on aeroplanes, medical professionals, you got to wear your compression socks because it helps yeah. prevent deep vein thrombosis and you know blood flow is improved and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. So you know, after a big, big, big run, some compression socks or some compression on your legs or something like that, and elevating them, all good. Not while you're running though. Don't that seems completely pointless? I don't. So there's this sort of that sort of stuff where it's slightly dubious. I think they've just it's just been adopted as like yeah, oh compression socks. Yes, I'm a runner. Okay, Watch I, me go. I completely, <laughs> I completely agree. And I I have worn compression socks a lot, and I think um I was sort of left with this decision. I think it was a 2018 London Marathon, and I was one of the pacers. And I thought, well, up until that point, I'd done all my sort of marathons have been done in compression socks. But by, by 2018, I didn't really think that compression socks were doing anything. I, they, they, yeah. These were actually like calf guards, you know, but same, gotcha. same thing. 
But I just thought, actually, well, you know what? Like, I haven't got that much evidence about what my marathon running is like without these things. And given that I'm kind of she- shepherding people around in a time, I, yeah. better, I better get the bloody compression you know, calf guards on. And uh, I think, you know, you could argue the same thing with um, K-tape. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying before K-tape start emailing in that it that it doesn't do anything but i but i don't think there's a huge amount of science to to to, to back it up but you see people no. who just you know taped up but before a marathon but i wonder actually yeah. if it's making you feel good maybe that's all right no i think that's it i think that if someone has a niggle that is not like totally gonna destroy any chances of their race then maybe a bit of tape or some support or some compression is exactly what they need to make you feel like you're backed up, that you've got the support that you need to sort of just get through the harder bits that you think it might hurt, it might twinge, blah, blah. But no, you're right. Like squeezing, what is some elastic squeezing my calf muscle going to do that my calf muscle can't do already? Yeah, yeah. You know, that's what's up. What, what is, what is the, the tape pulling on my skin? Because it's the skin that tape goes on. So I understand that, like, the, you know, you're, you're adding support to that stru- structure to the, the, the area of the body. But mm. at the same time, the muscles and the internal and your, um, you know, uh, what's, your, what's your man who likes bouncing around? Oh, your fascia. Uh, fascia. Your fascia. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so your fascia, um, you know, that stuff's pretty, pretty good at doing its job. So I, I, I'm, I'm with you. I think they're both dubious and both incredibly important to people. The, the the new ones, these arm warmers, aren't they? That you see, you know, um, Mo Farah's. He's he's never about his arm warmers, is he? I, I think he I think he wears them in bed. Actually, he's always. Mate, when we got to, when we were um, uh, when we went to Monza for breaking two, the 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 uh, like the test event. Mm. That was when they unveiled all of the shoes, and obviously everyone got excited about the shoes. But all the kit that they unveiled then was really interesting because it was all it was all bobbled, and it was all sort of built around the premise that you're disrupting the air flow when you move so it makes you more aerodynamic so they had all this like I can't, they called it like um blade something or something i can't okay, remember but it right. was it, you know like the, so the shorts all had like little fins on them and the, and the arm sleeves had dimples and stuff and it kind of comes from science based around time trialing on bikes where right. you know that if, if you uh or golf balls where you put dimples in a golf ball and it makes it more you know it makes it fly through the air better it's, it's that kind of like you're disrupting the air so they had all this stuff and i guess when you're doing or aiming to do a sub two marathon Every small course, micro course. thing is, is completely, but that feeds down into general. I mean, me putting on some arm warmers that have got <laughs> like aerodynamically enhanced bubbles is going to make no difference. No, no, you're right. But I think when we're, when we're worried or when we're trying to get the most from ourselves, it's so much easier, isn't it, yeah. to put your faith in, in kit, oh, isn't it, than actually like, oh, what, yeah. what's your training been like, you know? Oh yeah, <laughs> I haven't done any training, but I've got my lucky hat on. <laughs> I've got the nose strip again. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I would be really, really interested to know what um, our listeners think. So, I do think that um, sports like running do lend themselves to little superstitious uh, kind of routines or items of kit. So, let us know what's your dubious piece of kit that you wear, regardless. Uh, podcast at runnersworld.co.uk. Our guest this week is a runner and adventurer who last year became the first person to run a marathon in every country around the world. Nick Butter has distilled some of the experience and lessons learned into a new book, Running the World, which is out now. 
He's here to speak with us about the highs, lows and lessons learned from running a marathon in 196 different countries. So Nick, welcome to the Runners World podcast. Thank you very much for having me on. We have to start, Nick, with why did you decide to attempt this audacious challenge? <laughs> yeah, good question. Um, I think there's a, a combination of lots of reasons why, why it ended up happening. Um, which is very much the way I look at it. Uh, I I was inspired by this brilliant chap called Kev, and if anybody has ever followed me before, you've I've, I speak quite a lot about Kevin. Um, I was running back in 2015. I was running the Marathon de Saab race um, out in the Sahara Desert, seven days, grueling race. You 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 intent mates with uh, with eight or so people, um, hundreds of tents of people, and you you suffer through this this scorching heat of the desert together. And and one of those people was was this guy called Kevin. And he was diagnosed with terminal prostate cancer and he revealed this to me during the run and we chatted and what struck me so obviously with him was that he had this weird disconnect between him being so happy and yet he was telling me he was dying and potentially only had as little as two years to live and it just, you know, just kind of this didn't chime with me and I thought, actually, what is it? And I realised that it was his incredible way of dealing with everything and just going head on into into life and he just realized the value of how 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 lucky we have it when you know when things like aren't like that happening and he understands you know how much he needs to use his time before his time is up and i think that can go the same for everybody and you know to cut a long story short then there was lots of talking lots of thinking um, and I wanted to do something for, uh, to fight prostate cancer, to raise some money for him and, and people in his situation. Um, and so Prostate Cancer UK is the principal charity in the, in, in the country. And I set a target of a quarter of a million pounds. And then I decided what I was going to do. <laughs> and that was, you know, he said to me, look, just go out, don't wait for a diagnosis. Those were his really key, key words with me. Let this conversation be that. And, and it really was. You know, I've always been edging towards doing something that was a bit nuts, but um, I Googled it and I realised it had never been done before. Um, and I, at the time, I just, I couldn't believe that it hadn't been done. You know, we put people on the moon. And so as soon as I settled on it, um, that was it really. And then two years passed of, of, of a lot of quite difficult planning, trying to find funding and, uh, to, you know, to, 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 to fix on that number and, and all sorts of stuff and lots of post-its and maps and, and conversations. And then... Yeah, January the 6th of 2018, um, I hit the start line and, and we got going. And, and the whole, you know, the reality of the situation is by the time I was due to start that, you know, the adventure is that Kev was potentially, his time was already up according to the diagnosis. And, and amazingly, you know, he not only lived to see me start, but he also lived to see me finish and is still alive. He is sadly, very sadly, still going to die of, of prostate cancer. Um, because it is you know he's he's riddled with it and and as are many people with prostate cancer but he was yeah he's this huge inspiration so that you know the desert meeting kev then you know fixing on that trip and and yeah there we go the rest is history as they say no it's incredible i think it's incredible that you managed to turn it from an idea the kind, i would almost term it a kind of pub idea that you have after a certain amount of pints and you talk about but you actually made it happen i think the logistics around organizing a trip like this must be just mind-boggling Oh, yeah. The, the logistics were by far the most difficult piece. I think runners and good runners, um, or not even good runners, just runners that have run a lot. Um, runners that have run a lot, not necessarily do it well or fast, but any any runners know that running you know a marathon every few days in a different country, yes, that's going to be taxing. But then you have the extra extra level of complexities with the political volatility of countries we had 90 or so flights that were cancelled um 
and again put it into context we we planned this route and it caught it we thought it would could have cost about 100 grand to to get the trip done and we thought we'd be taking about 220 flights it ended up costing us a hell of a lot more and we took over double the amount of flights 455 flights in the end gives you an idea of how much you know it took two years to plan um because there was so much that we we, we just couldn't anticipate um but yeah it was uh i'm very proud of the logistical side because i it was i was quite well connected with my mum and dad and my dad was bless him he he took it well, i say i took it upon him he didn't take it upon him at all i volunteered him to to do a lot of the logistics work and then we slowly built a team up around us and um, and like you say, we made it happen. But you're absolutely right. It was that kind of pub idea, except it was in my own head for a few weeks. Um, and the more I thought about it, the more I just I just thought this has to be done. How much money did you end up raising for prostate cancer in the end? So we got um, just over, well, I think we're still raising money because fortunately we send our newsletters out and with this kind of bit of press, we hopefully, you know, the Just Giving page is still live. Um, we've just got over 200 and I think it's 200 and something 203,000 pounds wow yeah i'm i'm pretty pretty pleased with that yeah that's a, that's that is it and and you did you did kind of a lot of carbon offsetting as well didn't you to sort of offset the the flying element is that right yeah absolutely we're actually speaking with a few companies now it's something that i'm glad you brought that up because it's something that through my future projects we are focusing very heavily on um also the kind of educational side of the environmental stuff but you're absolutely right we offset a hundred percent if not more of the of the carbon that i was emitting through air travel and you know you fill in these questionnaires with the companies that were offsetting it and they go into detail of you know am i a meat eater am i traveling by train by car all that sort of stuff and, and they managed to create this lovely map of of what your carbon footprint will be and then they add a little bit on to make sure um and and yeah so we fortunately we ended up offsetting it and that was through projects offsetting is something that i think the general public including myself at the time were you know look at in a sense of not really understanding how that worked do you plant a tree for every mile you fly in the air um and effectively yes the answer is you could do that but there are far better ways of doing it so my particular offset there was four different projects that we we had around the world um a couple in kenya one in mongolia and one in um uh, Guatemala um, and things that they do there is stuff like reducing the amount of fuel needed to uh, to heat a, a fire in a in a yurt which then ultimately if you burn less wood you also saving more trees but you're also uh, reducing the amount of smoke that the people in these yurts that are living in the yurts are inhaling and therefore the health is improved and so there's this huge map and I mean um, uh, David Attenborough in his, his latest book actually talks very eloquently about the benefits and the huge exponential benefits of of carbon offsetting. And so, yeah, I've got I've got very into it since learning about that. But, um, yeah, I'm lucky, actually, that a company, you know, a company managed to take me under my wing and, and help me with that. Well, I want to get into the nitty gritty, Nick, of um, I understand from I looked at some of the statistics from your adventure. And one of the ones that jumped out was that you were you were you were robbed or mugged at gunpoint at one point. So tell us about that. Yeah, that was. Uh, yeah, I've, I speak about that quite a lot, and every time it's it's still a bit. It sh- you know, sends shivers up my spine. Really, obviously, you don't expect it, but uh, you know, running through every country, there's part of me that expects some form of trouble. After I finished running my my marathon, and I was walking through the streets of Lagos, the the, the big open air market, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, open air market in the world, through the centre of Nigeria. During the during my time weaving through these these streets, 
I was actually arm in arm with a couple of people that were there to A, show me around and B, protect me. And even so, I was set upon by these this group of, I would say between five and eight, but it grew to a big bunch of people that were initially just trying to grab things off me, like my camera. And, and then it started kicking and then there was starting to kind of fists flailing. Uh, and then, you know, that's when the, the weapons started to be much more apparent and very much in my face. Um, hand, well, hand, well, it was one handgun, but most of them were just big, you know, semi-automatic weapons and, um, and, and things like machetes and knives and swords. And, and, but the thing is, you know, I'd seen those lots of other places, so that wasn't particularly scary at that point. You know, when you are then kicked and I had even some cracked ribs as a result, um, it, was, it was pretty, I mean, not violent in terms of the, the very violent attacks they can happen, but violent in the sense that I hadn't experienced it before. Fortunately, this group of people that I was with, they managed to kind of shield me a bit as I was in a ball on the floor, um, genuinely absolutely terrified. And I've always thought that if I get into that situation, I'll just run because that's what I do. <laughs> but you, anyone that's ever been to the to Lagos market, there's no chance you can run anywhere quickly because you just fall over straight away from the mud, from the people, from the stray goats or chickens or cars, you know, there's no way you can get out. Um, and so... And so fortunately, we ended up paying these guys off with as much as we had on us um, to let us go. But I, I was very lucky to experience it and get out of it. But I also then had a lot of other countries, especially in that part of the world, that I was then fearful of, uh, you know, looking over my shoulder every five minutes. So, yeah, there was it was shocking, but I, I got away with it. And there wasn't any you know, other than some bruises and some scrapes and some rib damage. I was I was all right. Well, let's talk about some more positive memories. And if you had to pick your favourite so your favourite marathon out of the 196, what, what one would it be? There's an awful lot of lot to choose from. I've got favourite countries, I've got favourite cities, favourite people I ran with. You know, the, so, you know, whether I'd be the times when I went, you know, after a run and I went, you know, well watching or whether I, you know, stumbled upon a cheetah in Namibia. Uh, I ran around erupting volcanoes in Guatemala and sat on the lip of a volcano in, in Nicaragua. Um, all of this sort of stuff. And that, that was actually mid run. Um, so they were they were quite good. But I would say a couple that stand out are Nepal and uh, Sierra Leone. Nepal obviously is a beautiful place as I call it the crumple zone of the world where all these mountains come together and it's the culture is very different and the people are extraordinarily friendly um so I had a I had a brilliant time there with with a very good bunch of people who I still have have uh, have their whatsapp numbers for now and we, we keep in touch and in Sierra Leone that was the you know once and is still one of the poorest countries in the world where people live on less than a dollar a day and I experienced some kindness that I will probably never experience again to that extent. The amount of people that supported me gave me water that they didn't have enough water for themselves. You know, just kids that had nothing that were elated just to have a, a selfie with me. Um, so there, there is a, an awful lot. I don't, you know, when it, the, the book that, you know, is now is now coming out, the amount of stuff that I want to cram into that book, you know, you can't write about everything, but touching the surface on all of them has been, it's been nice to remember them. And, and like you say, all of the highs absolutely outweigh the lows. This is the Runner's World Podcast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I wondered, like, what do you think you found out about yourself and perhaps the world in general through through doing a challenge like this? Because obviously you've now seen more of the world than, well, 99.9% of people will get the chance to, yeah. Yeah, I th- so number one, uh, and it's the message that I now preach about in all my school talks and when I speak in businesses or, or in the theatres that we're, you know, we're speaking next year when they all reopen again. The, the general message that I talk about is exactly that. And it's the feeling of being outrageously privileged and us not realising it. You know, the, the amount of people out there, and I use the number, which is there's two million children every year that die under the age of five years old because they haven't got enough food. But this is one thing that we can change. And the stuff that I saw in myself is that I had a, a moment of crises a few times where I thought, am I just being this spoilt runner that's been privileged enough to do this? Shall I just stop and, you know, do everything I possibly can to help everybody that I'm meeting? I was very torn many times, you know, moved to tears when I was visiting hospitals or, or cancer rehabilitation centres or kids' hospitals. Um and getting emotional just thinking about it, it the, the amount of people that are in need and we take for granted and we moan about things you know we're british we're always going to moan about the weather we have it pretty damn well even when you just consider the weather um and you know the clothes on our back the amount of opportunities and freedom that we have which people don't often have elsewhere in the world i i really hope that the rest of the world catches up and and not catches up with me but catches up with the understanding of of the rest of the world in the sense that we have a, an awful lot of responsibility to support other other nations and other and other communities um and also to take some some lessons from them yeah it sounds like you've kind of been forever changed by the challenge which i think is is actually quite unsurprising given that you know the, the scale of what you what you, what you did yeah um where, where can people go nick to find out more about I guess your next challenges and and also the uh, running the world book. Yeah, thank you. So uh, the easiest way to find out about what's going on is uh, two things: Instagram, which is Nick Butter Run, Nick Butter Run, or my website, which is very simply nickbutter dot com. Um, and on there, you've got my email address, my phone numbers on there too. Um, just reach out if you want to come and run with me at any point. Um, as I said, I'm based in the van. We're actually running north to south of Italy at the moment. Um, and uh and in future next year we have the speaking tour going on in 2021 in various schools and theatres around the country plus uh we have 
three or four pretty good exciting expeditions we're going to run north to south of new zealand we're going to circumnavigate iceland we're going to run north to south of malawi basically just have a lot of fun running um and God, that sounds all right nick doesn't it that, that sounds all right yeah it does sound all right as i as i as i hinted at earlier a lot of it is going to be to support some uh, uh institutions around the environmental world um and we're we're kind of just testing the water with some of that but with some exciting stuff coming in later years but I'll leave that for another conversation. That's great. Well, Nick, look, thank you so much for um, for your time in speaking to us on the Runners World podcast. I think yeah, incredibly inspiring what you've uh, what you've done. I'm very envious actually of some of the, the countries you've visited. I'm I'm very grateful to have me on, and I think if, like I said, if anyone wants to get in touch, then please do. And uh, obviously, a last plug of the book, which has taken me a good year to finish writing. It's called Running the World. It's on Amazon now on discount actually, um, and it's just a, a lot of stories. It tells the journey right from the beginning, planning stages, all the way through to me crossing the finish line in Athens. And uh, yeah, so hopefully people will enjoy it. I'm sure they will. Nick, thank you again for your time. Much appreciated. No, thank you. Take care. This is the Runner's World podcast. So that brings us to the end of this week's Runner's World podcast. A big thanks to our guest, Nick Butter, and to you, of course, for listening. You can still subscribe to Runner's World magazine and get three issues for only £5. Please what a deal. visit. What a deal. Please visit hearstmagazines.co.uk slash Runner's World podcast to get this exclusive listener offer. Uh, the Runners World podcast is available on Acast, iTunes, and all of your favourite podcast apps. Just search Runners World UK and remember to subscribe. Thank you for listening. We will see you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colours, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.